When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Hot D, the officially unofficial podcast for House of the Dragon on HBO. I'm Jim. I'm Aaron. And today we're back for another episode covering season one, episode three. It's the feedback episode. Aaron, how's the feedback looking? Got a healthy amount, man. This is the first nice. time I had uh, three full pages of Gmail. So I think that's up to close uh, to pushing 100, 150. Uh, again, yep. not not the thousand, not the 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 million mark that I used to put up on Game of Thrones. We'll see. We'll see a couple seasons of this. Um, yeah, it's. Uh, the, I wouldn't say that the competition for getting red right on the show is quite Damon running along the beach of Bloodstone, but mm-hmm. uh, we're getting there. Uh, I got a couple of kind of show, just general show notes I wanted to mention out. There's a lot of people, unfortunately, having problems with our premium feed and the Apple Podcast app. It seems yeah. like it's confined to that combination in particular. And I've heard anecdotally that Apple podcast app is having some issues, period. Um, and I can replicate any of these issues. So, yeah, we, we are still kind of looking at like maybe there's something. And, and I've heard anecdotally that sometimes if you've got your feed address and like it's just like HTTPS colon slash slash bald move dot com, et cetera, et cetera. If you put in a www dot in front of the bald move that that can help i've heard also that dropping the s off the https can help but also i've heard a lot of people just retrying it and it just kind of works which makes it seem like maybe there's something in a recent update that uh is messing up authenticated feeds with uh apple apple podcast app um i use pocket cast jim you said you've switched off of apple podcast you're using downcast overcast overcast uh-huh. I've heard that like there's there's a lot of great alternatives that if you are really at your wits end with the authenticated feed, uh, you can try because it doesn't seem like, again, it's 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 spread to other platforms. So hopefully that'll help. Hopefully Apple will get their stuff together. Uh, Another and quick thing also is uh, apparently the podcast never made it over to Spotify. So uh, for our rings of power stuff, I know a lot of people are listening to both should be mm-hmm. up there now. So try it again. Oh, okay. Yeah. It doesn't affect um, this podcast, but I know we have a big crossover audience. I also want to talk about, like, because I got a lot of email criticizing or being confused by the time jumps and a lot of people being hmm. thrown by it. And mm-hmm. I guess my expectation was that we would jump to the kind of the meat. We would kind of like start in the middle of the Civil War and we would have a bunch of flashbacks as, you know, like as Damon's talking about, you know, why does he hate you know, so and so, so much he can get misty eyed and, you know, you can do the Wayne's world and he would flash back to some conversation. I'm pleased that that's not happening. I actually mm-hmm. think this is a better way to tell the story. Um, but as a consequence, you, we are going to have to have some time skips because, you know, this this the, the lead up to this, 
taking Rhaenyra from her little girl to someone who's going to be in, enmeshed, you know, in 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 a, in a Targaryen civil war is going to take, you know, decades, um, mm-hmm. uh, approximately twenty years to, from. Uh, so we're going to have to probably goose it along. And I, since my expectation was the opposite, that we would be like in the thick of things and flashing back. Um, I'm delighted, but I see a lot of people are like. Especially since it's not like it happens in the middle of the episode. It's happening in the beginning of the episode. They're like not getting their footings. But I think on balance, as someone who's read the book, this is better. This is a better way to adapt it. Um, I, I would probably agree with that. I haven't read the book. Um, right. But I also had expectations we were going to jump right into the, the middle of things. Um, I'm enjoying seeing all the, the color leading up to it. I, I think like motivations are important to understand uh, when it comes to civil wars and that's what I'm here for so yeah keep doing more of that yeah I keep fire and blood by my desk uh, and it's got roughly 700 pages um, about 120 I think concerned the dance of dragons and we have gone through about four of those pages (laughs) okay so just to get an idea of like how much kind of like expansion and characterization and that's that was what was missing you know that was what was missing from you know a definitive there's a whole bunch of well maybe this or maybe that and mushroom says this actually having those and then this was from a, a 200 years removed too. people talking about it it's like uh, trying to explain what george washington really thought about the revolution nowadays like yeah you can read right. his journals and maybe sort of but but, but obviously in, in, in a pre borderline prehistory where maybe not everything was is attested you know like being able to actually go back and film something is you know would would would, would add new depth so it's like i i think that explains why some people are just uh disappointed because they thought maybe there wouldn't be these time skips and also there's a lot of i'm seeing a lot of unprocessed trauma from game of thrones season eight you know like the jetpacking and like people are seeing this as shortcutting the main story when i'm telling you we haven't even got to the main story yeah they are long sewing the main story not shortcutting it okay (laughs) it's the opposite so like i understand Mm -hmm. why people are like oh my god everything's happening and you know, they're not sit, but and and I don't think the battle at the end of this episode assuaged those fears. But I, mm-hmm. I'm, not, I'm not being a HBO, HBO Max shill. They'd have to give me screeners for me to even think about it. Uh, <laughs> I really do think this is the best way to tell the story. So, yeah, finally, yeah. we over the last week, uh, misgendered poor Emma Darcy. So uh, I heard that person identifies as non-binary. I've I'm not familiar with this person's work. Obviously, yeah. everything I've seen in the preseason, she's presenting as a very conventional uh, feminine. She her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's the story of Rhaenyra Targaryen. Um, so I just got confused. Sure. Uh, yeah. And I will I, I won't promise that it won't happen again because we <laughs> uh-huh. are. You know, I, I don't know. They might do something non-binary with Rhaenyra. You know, she's unchangeable, as, as changeable as the dragon's flame or whatever. And certainly there's been non-binary uh, queer folk throughout history all the time. So they could do something interesting with that. But I, I will say that, like, you, you guys understand, like, the mispronunciations that I do. It's not me necessarily being funny, although I'm glad you guys do get a lot of enjoyment. There's also some <laughs> neurodivergency uh, tied up with that. Yeah. Um, so like that same kind of conceptual confusion sometimes aff- afflicts me. But I I promise if it happens, it's not like because I remember growing up and thinking, you know, uh, I went through a Muhammad Ali 
uh, worship sure. phase like a lot of young guys do. And I, I always thought like the sports casters of the day that would throw Cassius Clay in his face as a defiance. Like, God, how fucking mm-hmm. cringe yeah. to disrespect a person based on, you know, essentially the culture war nonsense of their day, the Vietnam War, civil rights. And I always had a distaste for that. Um, so I promise you, if you ever hear me uh, doing a she, her, when it should be a they, them, it's just because I've, I've got stuff backwards. Um, it's not because I'm deliberately disrespecting uh, 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 Emma and uh, I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to try to do better. And for for our community's sure. credit, I didn't get a lot of like educate yourself shit, Lord. Uh, I got <laughs> yeah, I mean, everybody like I'm sure you didn't know and blah, blah. And everybody was very sweet yeah, and nice yeah. about it. And I appreciate that because I know you, uh, people don't have to be. No, people who've been with us for a while now, I think, understand that we're, we're not intentionally. I mean, intentions are important, right? And we're not doing yeah. this intentionally. So, And I'm not using this as an excuse up. to say I'm going sure. to like, I'm neurodivergent and a minor in Minecraft. I'm I'm going to try to do better. I'm just also yeah. trying to be realistic about the fact that I'm an aging Gen Xer. Uh, and it is somewhat it's it's uh, somewhat confusing to when the person that they're playing is a different role than what they're playing you know, than the, than the person they really are in real life. And yeah, so we'll see. We'll see. I hope, uh, I, I hope uh, that that helps um, let people know where we're coming from. There's still lots of hot D to talk about. We'll be back right after the break. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. We try to make it super easy to support making podcasts at Bald Move. Just join the club. Well, some people aren't the joining type, or maybe they're already in the club but want to add a little bit of gratuity for an especially great season of coverage, or for a podcast that really spoke to them or gave them that bit of support in a tough time. For these, and for whatever other reason you might have, our tip jar is always open. Head over to support.baldmove.com and click the donate option to say, hey, keep doing what you're doing. We appreciate it. Once again, check out support.baldmove.com for all the great ways to help me and Jim keep making the podcast you love. And now back to Hot D. All right, let's get to the actual show now, Jim. Okay. Uh, Ron Dawson is up first. My buddy Ron Dawson, I've uh, mm-hmm. been on a couple of his podcasts. He's been a couple of mine, especially if you're uh, a fan of the old three right turn days. But he said, are we supposed to believe that Damon and his sea snake uh, and the sea snake are losing despite having a fucking dragon because mm-hmm. the crab feeders are huddled in the back of a cave? Why the hell didn't Damon take a super slender ass dragon partially into the cave and send a few million degrees of fire down that tunnel? Mm-hmm. Hell, the dragon is literally called the worm. Couldn't they use a dragon to blast the opening and seal them in a the cave? Am I missing something? No, that was that was what my feelings were in the instant take and they remain the same. I think it's just not it's just poorly conceived. The whole the whole battle was fairly poorly conceived. And I think there's a couple because so like last year I watched the Pacific War. It's that one of those uh, the Pacific sides of World War Two on HBO. Um 
And uh, a real life thing was the fact that the Japanese troops could just dig into these volcanic islands and you would do ungodly amounts of shelling, Mm -hmm. you know, like big 12 inch guns from the Iowa class battleships just pounding this thing day or night. And they're like, surely to God, we've killed all these people. You land on the beach and then suddenly the shores are teeming with uh, valiant Japanese people doing their best to kill American Marines. How? How the fuck? Um, I, I think that like when I looked at this island, it looks a lot like the kind you know, not as not as much vegetation as the tropical Iwo Jima's and stuff, but like the, the volcanic nature and how like craggy and just like run shot through lava tubes and stuff. They even showed the worm trying to get in the tunnel and breathe in fire and it just kind of went and, and I don't know. It's I feel like if I was watching the Pacific and I saw two GIs go into flamethrower at the entrance of the tunnel and kind of wave it around like, oh, it doesn't work like that's dumb. But I think you're supposed it, it's kind of like analogous to that where it's like you're supposed. But again, I don't think I don't think Ron Condal is a military expert because uh, like you can tell that story. But like what the Japanese weren't doing was projecting strength from those islands. Right. They were digging right. in and had to be tunnel to tunnel hand to hand uh rooted out but they mm-hmm. weren't like they were projecting out, setting up trebuchets and they, taking they didn't down have American warships yeah they yeah 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 yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but so like I, I said and I, I if they were shooting flaming arrows these giant like trebuchets are kind of crazy i will we'll see and uh, the other thing is again this was a paragraph for an entire war there are other more detailed because like Number one, I don't think Martin is that great at battles. Like he tends to yada yada through a lot of battles in the canon. Hmm. But there are some where he kind of like, you know, uh, rubs his hands together and gets to work. And I think they're going to hold together. So, like, again, these are very minor skirmishes in the lead up to the main event. And I'm I'm hopeful that also showrunners listen up. Maybe take some of this criticism to heart. I bet you could find uh, pretty highly ranked retired generals over there in England or the U.S. that you could pay uh, a consulting fee and they can look at some of this stuff and fix it for you mm-hmm. and come up with more believable things. Uh, I think that would I, I would like for them to take that to heart because it would help me stay grounded in this the story. Uh Ryan. Can we talk about why it took Damon three years to defeat pirates? He had dragons, wealthy houses with nearly unlimited money, armies and ships, and it still took him three years to defeat the crab feeder. They really couldn't figure out a way to cut their supply lines and wait for them to starve, die of thirst, or run out of arrows. And then his successful plan to defeat the pirates wasn't even his idea. Don't get me wrong. He was a complete badass slicing and dicing these men, but it really showed again how terrible of a strategic thinker and leader Damon is. Is this guy really supposed to be a threat to the throne? Jim, your analysis. Uh, yeah, this is the other like major problem I had is when they're talking about how they're running out of rations and supplies uh, as the force that's conducting the siege here. Um, that was shocking and absurd to me, considering a, a like I said, they're they're the sieging party here, but b they're supposed to be super rich, right? Like Corliss yes. is supposed to be one of the wealthiest. Yes. Lords in the entire kingdoms. So like. But war is expensive. Yeah. But is how how expensive is food? Really? I mean, come on. It's a fair point. I do wonder if um, like you think about like what if Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk teamed up to go to war against China or something, some (laughs) private war like they're super rich. But do you understand? That's the second biggest economy in I, no, I understand. It's like, well, but they're going to war against a whole other continent of Essos. 
Yeah, but you cut their supply lines and then they're done, right? Like that's they can't get more money, more food, more. But anything. they got the invincible trebuchets at the hearts of right, the canal. Right. That's and the that's thing. The it's problem. like problem. Yeah, there that's are the, answers. The they're just sin. they're just not super satisfying if you get down to the bottom. Like it's like if you you come from the top down, it's like well that makes sense. You go from the bottom up, it makes sense. But the middle where like those strategy and tactics come together, it doesn't. Yeah, and I think they can get yeah. better. So, but like I, and also keep in mind that um, prowess on the battlefield does not necessarily make a uh, a good strategic strategician. I don't know a good strategic mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say that Damon is fierce and powerful and impetuous. I don't think he's particularly long thought out planner. And yeah, yeah, doesn't and seem I think like it. And I think that this this story did tell that well, you know, uh-huh. like everything else aside, like I think the essential characterization here is is going to be successful. Oh, yeah. That's the part of the battle that I like the most is why he's doing it. Uh, Layla says it dawned on me this morning that I don't think Damon said a single word from the moment he landed at the war strategy table to the end of the episode. I have a new respect for Matt Smith for the amount of emotion he's able to convey without saying mm-hmm. anything. The crab feeder too. how he's able to signal whole battalions of his men to attack with just the slightest of head nods for the part of the episode's logical faults. I found this silence intriguingly uncomfortable and I'm willing to accept the poorly planned and illogical siege to understand more about who Damon is. Be nice to know more about the crabby guy, but will probably be difficult since he's been torsoed. Indeed. <laughs> uh, a a yeah, blatant torsoing if I've ever seen one. You're right. I didn't even think about that, but from yeah, the moment he lands on that dragon, he says nothing. All the way up yeah, through I think, killing the crab feeder on the cover of his new heavy metal album. I think he has one line where he's in a distance shouting, Kragar, come and fight me at the very beginning of the episode. And that's it. Like from from after he screams out the challenge. Uh-huh. And, and I thought I, I called that out in the episode. Like I love the delicate courtly way he reads and accepts the news and then folds it up and, and then just beats. Like I, that's such mm-hmm. a great Damon moment, in my opinion. Uh, Josh said when Corliss said his initial or said the thoughts and this is um, his subject line was regarding the it's going to take weeks to get ships from Driftmark. Mm-hmm. My initial thought was those ships are actually being built, which uh, yeah. perhaps suggesting he lost that many and there's others coming off the assembly line. Um, that makes sense. That's not a bad point. And people are like, can you actually turn out ships that fast? Um, canonically in bravos <laughs> well yeah look at game of thrones you can well a lot holy of ships in a matter fuck of, uh, oh my god whatever it was i forgot about that because <laughs> yeah, that, that's thousands, the kind of, i think yeah uh because in bravos they have a, a shipyard called the arsenal that's able to churn out a fully furnished war galley once a day at Damn. their maximum output so like i think valerians could probably uh, approach something of that level with their wealth but that also explained like why it's been expensive and it's not just that it, they're spending money and they're replacing mm-hmm. ships but like they're just losing so there's so much of this their supplies are going to the bottom of the sea or maybe even being taken over by the crab feeder has um, this created like a financial hole that Corliss is going to have the Valerian house is going to have to dig themselves out of over the course of the next Few Mild, it's or... mildly interesting about hmm. and then okay. you can kind of I feel like they were trying to show like a little bit of beginnings of financial stress with the other like the red wines again very attached to the fleet uh, they're very associated with sea power like them complaining about how the war is going it's like you know the mm-hmm. grumblings of the wealthy and the elite like it's starting to hit, you know shit it's all fun and games until 
we got to decide to do one last tourney this year because, you know. <laughs> sure. Um, which is also very down Abby, and I, I love that aspect of the show. Russell says, something I am enjoying completely about House of the Dragon is their characterization. I know you guys have talked a lot about it, but I find it thrilling and exciting that we get this fleshed out version of House Targaryen. As a book reader, you always get this high fantasy, black magic, blood magic, incest, deranged feel about the Targaryens, even in Fire and Blood, which I know is intended them to be essentially gods. There's always been some weird shit around the corner with these guys whenever you're reading about them that can, if you let it, suck you away from the actual world. They can be two dimensional at times. But House of Dragon is fixing that, showing us something that even Martin's writing cannot do on paper. The Targaryens are multidimensional, even uh, that even so that these so-called gods are not omnipotent, nor are they omnimalevolent or omnibenevolent, but ambiguous and ambivalent towards the, each other and themselves. They are failable, and in my favorite part, their lives are tedious. They have real world, real Westerosi, Maori Povit shit going on, and I love it. Yeah, yeah. This, this is what I keep saying. This is what's missing in the House of the Dragon. This humanized aspect of them. Yeah. Uh, Shintaro in Vancouver says regarding the dragon riding footage and how both Game of Thrones and House of the Dragon have struggled to make their close up shots riding dragon back look believable. Have you seen Tom Cruise's promo for the next Mission Impossible where he's standing on top of a biplane? The sheer amount of wind, noise, and scale make these shots look incredible, and those are on machines that top out at 75 miles an hour. Do you both feel as I do that House of the Dragon could take a few pointers from that footage and use these visual and audio cues to more accurately depict what it would be like on top of a massive flying beast, which I'm guessing would exceed the speed of a World War One wooden plane? Um, That's tough. That's tough because it's not what they're going for, right? I, I, Tom Cruise is going for the effect of how is this man staying on this thing? Uh, he, he's doing a stunt. Whereas in, you know, House of the Dragon, they're going to be performing uh, potentially like narrative stuff on dragons. <laughs> like they're, yeah. it's going to be important to be able to understand what people are saying, to be able to uh, read facial expressions, not to have their cheeks so far pressed against the wind that they're not going to be able to, uh, to open their mouth, let, let alone like, utter a word i yeah you just can't do that in this show because of the it's important to see and hear people on dragons but i don't know how you solve that problem because it feels artificial i do think they could take a page from maverick and like because like i don't know if you literally strap a dragon saddle to the top of a biplane and just get take people through loop to loops and stuff because like there mm. was something visceral about watching top gun and seeing tom cruise like struggling to pull through seven, eight, nine G turns, right? Uh-huh. Like you get the idea that like you are really wrestling a machine of metal and fire through the air at these terrific speeds. And okay. I think that's something I, th- I think he's on to something. They, they need a little bit more feeling like you are barely in control of this massive war beast uh, rather than it being a yippy fun thrilling, which it <laughs> right. is. I mean, but the like he was silly, yeah. but like, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe maybe you could do something where when they're in the thick of battle, you're not, you know, having people talk or issue commands or insults right. to other people. You know, you right. they're just hanging on because this dragon's going, you know, balls to the wall. But like, yeah, then you stop the action for a second. Right. A dragon like hovers or just kind of 
takes a little easy um, as they're coming yeah. around for another pass. And that's when you do the dialogue and that stuff. Because you have a good point. It's also kind of unrealistic that when you see like, uh, oh shit, what was it? The the Keanu Reeves Surfer FBI movie, uh, Point Break. Mm-hmm. You know, when you see those guys having this long extended conversation while they're jumping out of an airplane, like that just doesn't happen, right? <laughs> if you want you them can't. ripping through the air at 90 miles an hour, then you're just going to hear, yeah. you know, it's not so, possible. There is, and I've seen other shows. Like I, one, I had big complaints in some of the early seasons of The Expanse that some of their zero, zero G and high G thrust work was rough, mm-hmm. and they continually refined it, continually refined it until like everybody kind of like believably looked like they were being slung inside these giant metal cans, you know? Right now, open cockpit that to where right. <laughs> you're just getting wind in your face at seventy five to a hundred miles an hour. Uh, yeah it, it's a tough problem to solve i agree but they could probably do a better job uh continuing on the dragon theme ayana says in later seasons of game of thrones once danny had gained her confidence we saw plenty of scenes in which all hope seemed lost then her dragon swooped in to save the day often accompanied by reinforcements cue epic music one instance that comes to mind rather iconically is the battle scene from the spoils of war uh, by the way, did did that gold ever make it to King's Landing? I'm I'm still not sure. I don't think so. I didn't. I never yeah. saw it make it there. Yeah, yeah. I never saw a Raven or either way. Another mm-hmm. from Let It Be Fear when Euron looks into the clouds to see Drogon charging toward him to destroy the Iron Fleet. In Game of Thrones, these moments felt epic and powerful, and frankly, just cool. And House of Dragons, I do understand we're in a different age. Dragons are more commonplace, and uh, their presence is not as shocking the same way it becomes decades later. But I can't help but feel and wonder if we're getting too many scenes of Dragon Saves the Day too early in the show. In episode two, the, inch- the tension between Otto and Damon's dissipates when Rhaenyra shows up on Cyrax, a.k.a. Dragon Saves the Day. In episode three, all hope seems lost till Laenor shows up on Sea Smoke. Again, Dragon Saving the Day. My question to you both, does Condal risk overusing this particular plot device too early? You can almost certainly expect more dragon-involved battles as the show progresses, and part of me worries the effects become less powerful. You see it too often. It's a fall. Um, yeah, let's let's take that there. What is your feeling on the dragon combat of House of the Dragons? I wonder as we get deeper into the dragon stuff if that's going to be necessary, like dragon shows up to surprise save the day, because... As people get more aware of dragons and become like more uh, conscientious in their dragon hygiene, let's say in a battle, mm. probably not going to be surprised by dragons very often, um, or they shouldn't be. Here's the other thing: I, yes, I think you can use a single trick, no matter what it is, whether it's dragon saving the day or something else. Uh, too many times you can overuse. I, I liken this to a horror movie that does jump scares over and over again. Mm-hmm. I get bored with that movie, like right. I need I need atmosphere. I need a lot of different types of scares. And yeah, if he keeps going to that well, it's going to get old and not interested. But we'll see. And I also think it's different. Like my entire life, uh, the wars that my country's engaged in, we've enjoyed air superiority. And it's like super cool when your troops are advancing under an impenetrable shield of iron in the sky. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if you ever went to another pier that had just as much capability, it wouldn't be nearly as much fun. Right. Sure. And I'm saying all this dripped in irony. Okay. Uh, right. obviously. obviously when you have dragons unopposed, 
it's a completely different dragon saves a day than when both sides have access to dragons and mm. they, you know, it's, it's more like a set piece that you do you risk it in this battle because oh, how many dragons have we got? How many dragons have they got? Do we even risk flying dragon? There'll be yeah. ways to kind of make this more interesting. And also we, we just really haven't seen other than the brief bit of zombie ice dragon, uh, action in the very late stages of Game of Thrones, like dragon versus dragon. And mm-hmm. uh, if fire and blood is to be believed, we will get more of that. And that's going to be, I think, inherently more fascinating, I think. Yeah. So I think I think I just like if we get bored with dragons fighting dragons, then God help us. You know what? Where are we going? We're we're yeah. really fucking burnt out fantasy junkies at that point. And help the show because it's not yeah. going to have a lot of gas in the tank. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's not House of People in Blonde Wigs talking, you know, like mm-hmm. <laughs> we're eventually going to get to the dragon parts. Uh, Stacy says, are the Lannisters or if the Lannisters are the Lords of Casterly Rock, then this theme song, the Reigns of Castamir, is that already a thing or no? I think I caught a whiff of it just before and the Lannister twins gifted the spear. So you might be conflating the Reigns, R-E-Y, ENS of Castamere with the Lord, the former Lords uh, of Casterly Rock, uh, which in antiquity of Game of Thrones, the Westeros era, uh, I'm talking thousands of years ago, uh, a, a, a borderline myth- mythic figure called Lan the Clever uh, tricked the Casterlies out of their rock and stole their whole house and name. And there's lots of different theories like, you know, uh, and, and ways that he has said to gone about that. But this happened a long time ago. Um, and the reigns of Casimir, this reign rebellion happened in Tywin Lannister, Big mm-hmm. Daddy Dynasty Tywin Lannister's day because his father was notoriously weak and, you know, kind of feckless in his rule. Uh, so Tywin came around. He had faced a lot of lords being like, who the fuck are you to tell us anything? Our, we got a lion on our coat and our it's, it's claws are just as sharp. And Tywin kicked their ass in, uh, raised their castle to the ground and commissioned a song to be written to, <laughs> to make sure when he writes in the room, he's got some sick ass wrestling intro music. Right. Mm-hmm. So, however, just like I wouldn't think it would be weird when we're in episode one and we're meeting Anakin Skywalker for them to do a remix of the Imperial March. You know, yeah. I don't mind them using that as like, what is that? The, the, the light motif, sure. you know, like a yeah. musical cue. Like, I don't think they should ever do full reigns maybe, mm-hmm. but even then, like, I don't know if the Lannister do something sick. Why not? Like it hasn't, it's, it's a historic, but from the like, how many people in the show know this? Know that the reigns of Castamere was tied. Like, I, it's there. It's definitely mentioned. I think Tyrion explains it in one episode. But like, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, it, it's it's much more tied just to Lannisters in general. So I don't mind it. Jake from Cincinnati, five one three representing. We were discussing last week the dull Lannister twin uh, might being the new master of ships. It got me wondering if you know about when the master of whispers became a small council position. My limited knowledge of Game of Thrones history, I would assume this position came about with the Mad King, but I feel that's too close to the history of the main story for how established a position it seems when we jump into the original series. So, unlike many of the positions on the small council, like the King's Hand, the Master of Coin, the Master of Law, the Master of Ships... The Master of Whispers, essentially the spy master or mistress role, wasn't developed at the beginning with Aegon. Because a lot of these traditions began with just the way, like, this is how I'm going to do my thing as a king. And everyone just kind of followed suit, because why not? He's Aegon the Conqueror. 
Um, the Master of Whispers first was established during the reign of Magor the Cruel. And what you see going forward is a lot of reactions to that. Like when you're a king following Magor the Cruel, do you want a Master of Whispers? Is that strongly associated with like tyranny and cruelty and wanting, you know, like like skullduggery and backstabbing? Like, do you do you even need a Master of Whispers? And then, you know, corruption it is they'll kind of seesaw in that position will be fulfilled and unfulfilled until it becomes a lot more established in Robert's time. And probably the Mad King didn't hurt with that. You know, honestly, having someone that paranoid and suspicious. Um, so it's not it's not a historic for a Master of Whispers position to be unfilled in Viserys's time. I thought you were going to say the Master of Whispers position isn't an official position, because I feel like that would be the way to go with a spy master, right? Don't acknowledge that you're actually doing any spying. That's, that's, that's actually the real, like, yeah, uh, it's kind of like Tywin says, if a real master of whispers wouldn't need to be called a master of whispers, right? They just be whispering from the shadows and master of (laughs) it, you know, point taken, point taken. Uh, Neil says, I wanted to add some perspective on international compliance standards. You mentioned in the feedback episode for episode two, referencing the fart from episode one. Hopefully, this will be the last fart-related email, uh, but we'll, this is the definitive one. I'm an international compliance editor for NBC Universal. My job is to cut out, mute, or blur violence, language, and nudity and the like for different regions around the world. Every region has different compliance standards. For example, shows planning to be aired in the UK during the day are okay with violence, but they do not tolerate language or nudity. Funny how our cousins across the mm-hmm. pond are, are weird that way. Mm-hmm. Uh but for regions like Germany, Spain, Australia, and Brazil, we rarely have edits and just create or insert ad breaks per the region guidelines. We don't handle House of the Dragon. However, I doubt it is a compliance issue, the fart. Regions would just simply not air it. If it was ever to be comp- uh, compiled, it would most likely not leave a coherent storyline at all, especially the episodes like the first one, which is heavy in gore, violence, language, and nudity. There's just simply saying there's no way you could censor out the game yeah. for the, I saw the you TV know. version of Pulp Fiction. I don't know, <laughs> dude. And I tell you, as someone who watched that version for many, many times, where I saw the full, <laughs> I was comp- I was perplexed. What the hell is going on with the Gimp? Like, what the fuck sure. is the Gimp? What is happening with this Gimp? Like everything that happens in that basement was just like <laughs> impenetrable. <laughs> like, hmm. wow. Ironic um, that it was yeah. so impenetrable. Ah, yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, speaking of farts, however, I personally added much of the DreamWorks content for the Middle East and farts, burp, spit up, throw up, touching, even non-romantic touching must all be cut out. Trolls and boss baby episodes are a nightmare for me. <laughs> Conclusion, unlikely to fart was muted. I'd say it's 99.9%, uh, you know, just probably an audio mix issue. But it's weird because like, man, there is, this is the bear. This is the Berenstein Berenstein issue of our day. I think in 10 years from now, people are going to be like, Oh, another good one is like, uh, did Jess was, did the window of the milf that Jesse bails out of in the pilot episode of breaking bad, is she rocking full titties or not? Yep. Because depending on, Depending on when you saw that and when it aired, she had the the, the bolt ons front and center or not. Uh, I think there's going to be a bunch of like this these moments where it's like, I swear to God, there was a fart when that guy got his dick cut off. Nah, you're you're you know yeah. we're just setting up the the future wars for Gen Z. 
mm-hmm. uh, when they've uh, reached a age where they realize that life means nothing and everything's a lie. Oh, yeah. that, that's, then, the, that's the ground they'll fight on. Then you throw in, you know, deep fakes and the ease of editing video footage. We're and so no one's fucked. Know anything. We're, so, we're fucked. so fucked. Yeah, we're so fucked. Also, yeah. probably all living in a simulation. Let that sink in. <laughs> Moving on to Oliver. <laughs> He says, Ottawa's right, you warmongers. I love your coverage of the show and your coverage of anything and everything in general, but this time you're blinded by some unwarranted Hightower hate. All right. Oh, boy. Clearly, this realm is on the brink of civil war between young Aegon and Rhaenyris. If uh, Viserys dies tomorrow, uh, it's essentially nuclear war, but with dragons instead of nukes. The only way to avert this is to make them king and queen by marriage. In fact, it's such an obvious solution. I'm shocked nobody else has suggested it. Sure, it's maybe disgusting and weird to be betrothed to your two-year-old half-brother. Maybe. Just as an idea to consider. Maybe. Maybe. But it it sure seems worth it to avoid full-scale civil war, especially for Targaryens who marry family all the time. Surely one questionably, morally questionable marriage cannot be more important than the tens of thousands of dead small folk who are going to die in the conflict. Uh... Here's the thing. I think you're yeah. a little bit blinded by your own perspective here. You have the bigger picture. I think it's it's important to remember nobody knows or really thinks that this is headed for civil war. It's not like it's a foregone conclusion. It's not like, oh, shit, we're on the brink of it. It's really just like there's this crab feeder thing going on and Damon's being annoying. Mm. That's it, right? Like, I don't see the civil war developing yet. I see cracks. I see things happening that need to be patched over. But I think the Lenor marriage patches over the major problem and then you deal with the Damon issue. Yeah. Um, I do think that Otto, like to be fair to Otto, he is saying a lot that like, Hey, there is a, th- there is a very fragile and delicate balance here that could go fucko if Viserys dies, you know, and uh-huh. that could happen at any time, you know, look at the man's fingers, look at his back. This is not a healthy man, but also, Otto's not doing a lot of this for the realm. I think it's becoming clear. He's doing a lot of this for his family and his standing and his own pride and uh, lust for power and control. Uh, And he might do for good purposes. He's trying to sneak another of his own heirs in there is what he's doing. Sure. Sure. And why not? Like if you get the high towers all dragoned up, like, man, that's a big feather in your family's cap. So, Mm -hmm. um, but I, I also take your point. Like, I, it's, it's a delicate balance because obviously World War One is so traumatic for Europe that they would do almost anything to avoid World War Two, And they I mean, historians disagree like they do. But like, I think you can make a good argument that had a lot of the powers in Europe been a little less uh, hesitant to saber rattle and, and, and put things in check. Maybe World War Two wouldn't gotten off to the start. It did maybe. But hmm. like. You know, uh, you've got a realm who went through a bunch of bloodshed and violence and then they had seven years of peace and they're kind of wanting to do anything to. I I also say that, like, this show is definitely written with a more modern perspective than the books. Like in the books, they don't him and haw like maybe the individual POV characters do. But like society is not like, oh, my God, the king, the prince and the 17 year old princess is wearing her wedding, her two year old brother. Oh, my God. They'd be like, "Ah, that's fucking Targaryens. Right. Sure. Um, so, but also like, you know what we said last week in the maester section, um, it's not, not controversial that they, it's not like the Targaryens are just able to willy nilly marry brother and sister. Uh, and, and as their, their two way alliance with the faith of the seven is as much the Targaryens 
somewhat Westerosifying themselves and somewhat the faith turning a blind eye to the Targaryens because they're higher than us mortal men, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes the Targary- Targaryens get egregious. They get shit like the Faith Militant Uprising, where the Faith is like, nope, this is too much. The father, mother, maid, crone, Ev, stranger, smith, and warrior are all saying bullshit, uh, and they don't want that, right? They'd rather use the Faith of the Seven to enhance and secure their rule rather than go against it. So, I mean, am I crazy to, to think that it doesn't necessarily look like it's headed for Civil War yet? <laughs> Like you can hear grumblings about the air from people without thinking, fuck, this is an an immediate problem that I have to deal with. Otherwise, the realms go into war with itself. Yeah, I think it's definitely there's a lot of surface tension and under the surface tension. But like, yeah, I think that the majority of people aren't thinking because like, again, that's the other thing is like the Targaryens are still at the height of their power. And there's cracks showing, but like they're cracks backed by, you know, at least a dozen dragons. So how weak are they really? And you everybody's know, pledged their loyalty to Rhaenyra as the new heir. Everybody's already. agreed to play it's nice. Not, yeah, I, yeah, I don't think Viserys is crazy for not seeing a civil war developing, but that's just me. Carolyn says, my question specifically involves the scene in which Allison counsels King Viserys to how to handle Rhaenyra's marriage prospects. On a surface, it seems as though Alicent is looking out for her friend and giving sage advice that will benefit the king and princess both. However, giving Alicent's conversation with her father in the previous scene, I wonder whether Alicent is actually making a longer play to please her father's wishes to put her son Aegon on the throne. As an audience, we have seen that Rhaenyra has a habit of making impulsive decisions without much thought to the political consequences. She chose Kristen Cole for the Kingsguard, despite there being more politically advantageous choices. She ran off from Aegon's name day celebration after a public feud with her father, and she returned to the celebration the next day covered in blood. Allison would certainly know about this aspect of Rhaenyra's personality, given their deep friendship. Does Allison anticipate that Rhaenyra will choose a husband based on love or impulsiveness rather than political advantageousness? This would both weaken her claim to the throne in the eyes of the realm and may garner, garner may garner support for her son, Aegon. Based on what we've seen in the show, it does not seem that Alicent harbors malcontent for Rhaenyra, but I think the showrunners have done a great job of using her character to show what happens when women's choices are dictated by the men around them. Uh, this is kind of an interesting House of Cards take. Uh, some three to four dimensional chess. Uh, Mm-hmm. That I again, the, the thing I have is like, it, it seems like Allison is trying to, like, she has since the show started, find the middle ground between what her father's pushing her towards, mm-hmm. what she herself wants, and what she thinks is right by her friends and family, right? Yeah. Yeah, seems like it. But playing that conciliatory role. I, I do think you see the play behind the play, which is and maybe not even something she's intending, but something that can be useful, you know, uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. There's still lots of hot D left to talk about. We'll be right back after the break. And now back to hot D. Uh, Rob C asks, is attacking under the guise of surrender considered dishonorable in Westeros? If it is, would it bring blowback to Damon's reputation or would the heroism of the feat outweigh any potential negatives? Um, well, I will be. say I will say that we have seen this in actual Game of Thrones. If you'll recall, uh, Ramsey orders Theon to <laughs> yeah. ride into the Ironboard garrison of uh, Moat Kaelin, uh-huh. and he's holding a white flag and Theon convinces the Ironborn there to surrender. 
uh, and then they just promptly get massacred by Ramsey. Mm-hmm. So just like real life, it is a heinous war crime to approach an enemy position with a white flag and then it's and engage in perfidy, uh, which is the the you know, the dastardly changing of colors and and uh, you know essentially illegal lying in war. But it happens all the fucking time. Like look look uh, look up white flag on Wikipedia and look at all the historical times where that has been disregarded. So it's definitely a thing in Westeros. I think there is also the idea that Damon didn't. It's like it looked to me like the crab feeder was going to fuck him over. Like once they get Possibly. a sword, like once mm-hmm. they pick up the sword, it looked like those archers were ready to like pincushion him. And I wonder because the reality is, yes, it's a war crime. Good luck prosecuting a successful, victorious side right. of whoever won the war, right? Yeah. Especially uh, if they go to the extra war crime lengths of just killing every last survivor who saw it. So, And it doesn't help that from a Westeros perspective, these guys were bad people. They're staking their sailors out, uh, you know, being particularly barbaric sure. and cruel, dealing with survivors. Like, it's, uh, you know, war crimes beget war crimes, it seems. Mm-hmm. Uh so yeah, I don't I don't think it's going to have any blowback for him. But we'll see. Mm-hmm. Uh Rob C also says I thought in episode 2 Lord Corliss says his house weren't dragon riders, but in episode 3 here his son is on a dragon. Was it uh Rhaenyra the or Raina, the queen that never was? I think we're talking about Rhaenys. That uh-huh. provided them with a dragon. Yeah, no, you're exactly right cuz Rhaenys is a full-blown full-blooded Targaryen uh yeah. princess who is a dragon rider by her own right. And also are, do you have to have Targaryen blood to ride a dragon? Do you have to? I don't know. So it's the still Targaryens, no Targaryens think you do. The Targaryens think you do. They, you need some, you need a few drops of the dragon blood to, to charm a dragon anyway. But do you really? I don't yeah. know. I don't know. We'll have to keep watching. Um, cause like a lot of, like, honestly, I'm asking because, uh, mm-hmm. from the game of Thrones, like was Tyrion charming a dragon because he's a secret Targaryen or is it just that he read some dragon lore and knew the dragons like to have their free will respected and not be kept in underground cages? Like we never really got a satisfactory answer to that conclusion of the show. Martin hasn't finished writing the book. So like, do you need Targaryen blood to be a dragon writer? We'll, we'll see if they explore that in the show. Max from Cali says, wanted to respond to your comments about the battle of the Stepstones. I 100% agree with most of what you said about being silly in some parts. However, you said one thing that's incorrect. You said it's supposed to be besie- the besieged that are running out of food, not the people doing the sieging. However, it's common for those during the sieging to run into food and logistics problems as well. As an example, during the siege of Antioch, during the first crusade, the sieging crusaders faced severe food shortages. They split their army to send some foraging and a nearby Seleucid force took this as a chance to attack. The foraging party fought off the attack, but lost the food in the process, making the situation worse. Eventually, the crusaders got more food and won, but it's still a common problem in medieval times for both sides of a siege to struggle with food. Can easily headcanon situation where the crab feeder can attack supply ships trying to come into the island through guerrilla tactics while the island itself is small and rocky without resources. So both the besieged and besiegers would struggle with food. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, kind of, but the, nobody in those besieges had dragons. Like you, you can't 
effectively stop their resupplies. You can't do you can't do anything I, with a dragon floating around. It's it's not possible. Are you suggesting but, the dragon like drops care packages like he just has big, big no, no, no. <laughs> cargo containers in his claw like ah, drops it? No, I was suggesting the idea that like they they couldn't use guerrilla tactics to get out there and stop ships from coming in when their guerrilla tactics were giant trebuchets that could be burned up by dragon fire. But that reminds me of the uh, Monty Python skit where it's like, how are you? Uh, how, how would a swallow grab a coconut? It can, <laughs> right. it can hold it by the husk. Uh, also, yes, yeah. let's not forget. You could get a dragon to to drop a care package. You know Absolutely. how many coconuts, how many coconut trees a dragon could carry and drop a lot. Un- yeah. Oh. Uh, what is the airspeed of an unladen dragon anyway? We've, we, we've yet to 70, know. Greater than a World War One biplane. Is it? Or is that physically possible? Like, like the fastest animal we know today is the peregrine falcon in a dive. It can it can achieve speeds of 190 Hundreds. miles an hour. Yeah. Can a drag? Because like because the thing is about the peregrine falcon is there's kind of small and lightly built of the birds of prey. It's not like you're not seeing the fucking bald eagle. Or Andy's condor doing that shit because I think their wings would rip off at the bottom of that thing. Uh, how much does a dragon weigh? And like, what it's because like what what's going to limit their speed? Just like most planes is like how many G's can they pull before their wings fall off? Sure. Uh, well, and I, I don't those know wings and and get a get a lot of uh, I don't know. Can they hit terminal velocity? You can dive, can man. There's a lot of people. Just... A lot of the aces in World War One and Two found out you can get to a speed that you cannot pull out of. So, sure. be careful with that, uh, Damon. Yeah, definitely. Audrey, uh, no, Elise says I have a theory, or maybe more of a guess. Could we find out in this series where the three dragon eggs Danny is gifted from Game of Thrones come from? Could one of the eggs be the one that Damon stole in the episode? What's the shelf life of these eggs, and how are they preserved for Danny? These are this. Is, I never thought about this, but this is an interesting question. That would be an interesting tie in. If there's mm-hmm. three drags, dragon eggs that go to Essos at some point. Yeah. Um, and, and, and Danny's eggs were said to be fossilized. Like, you know, that they were, uh, I, I think all the Targaryen eggs at this stage are said to be kind of, you know, turned to stone that they've, you know, are impossible to hatch. And of course, then Danny throws them up on a funeral pyre and some blood magic and, Presto, mm-hmm. pisto, you got some dragon O's. Um, I don't know. Because, again, I, I don't think Danny was supposed to be able to hatch her eggs. It was a magical intervention. Um, and I think it would be super cool if... I hope it's not as lame as, like, the end of the prequels. But, like, you know, when you... Like, that could be the Obi-Wan taking the twin scene. Oh, you know, okay. oh, Bail Organa, you take the daughter. I'm going to take the son. Take him to Tatooine. Like, here's the three dragons. We have to make sure the the last hope of House Targaryen makes it across the way. Uh, that'd be kind of cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something something cool they could do with that. I'm sure. I got to say, I wouldn't be able to pick out those eggs in a lineup because, like, I think that they Green, roughly black. corresponded with the color of the dragon. But as has been uh-huh. frequently said, it was very hard to tell the dragons apart, especially, sure. you know, Danny was riding Drogon. But like, t- t- you know, taking what is it? Rhaegar uh, from Vega. I can't even remember the other names of the dragons. How fucking much lore I've forgotten. So mm-hmm. but th- th- they could do that with just someone saying something. So uh Audrey has a suggestion for how they can retcon the end of Game of Thrones. Says everything after John is resurrected was actually just a coma, death, fever dream for John. 
The new Kit Harrington show then retcons via flashbacks and dialogue with current day Jon Snow. I'll swallow that pill if they nail the writing. Okay. <laughs> okay. I don't know how much of this I want to entertain throughout the whole season, but like mm-hmm. if you're going to retcon in the Game of Thrones, the only way I think that works as a serious suggestion is if George gets off his ass and finishes those final two books. Yeah. Because then you could do something like that where you could have 20 years in the future. Uh, John is a more grizzled Lord Commander of the Night's Watch. And you can just uh, have a character get, you know, talk about, uh, you know, some detail and John corrects them. And let me tell you how it really went down, son. And then you just yeah. you have the books that have the real history that the show is going to refer to from then on. And you just kind of know. But like. If George doesn't finish them, I don't know how the hell. Like, what would it mean to retcon and correct it? <laughs> yeah, I'm with you. That's that'd be a little crazy. George has to die, given explicit rights to an estate to develop new material and finish his books, or he has to finish his books before he dies for this to be a dream of a retcon. You know, yeah. like yeah, right George now, we're in- or Brandon Sanderson has to finish this story. Yes, <laughs> and then we can get the retcons. Brandon would fucking do it. I mean, oh, that man can it. write. God, that man's like He'd a machine. Yeah, 15 other books in the same year. Sure. I'm not a huge admirer of the... Like, I've read several of a series of Mistborns, and I'm not a huge admirer of the way the man writes, but the man does write. Holy shit. <laughs> uh-huh. Avery from Baltimore says, listening to your House of the Dragon season one, episode two episode and discussion around the remake of the end of Game of Thrones, what about an animated series a la The Clone Wars? Hmm. Uh, illustrations would be a way for the characters to resemble the original cast and the actress could even voice the original characters. I also assume the action scenes would be a lot more affordable. Seems like a pretty reasonable way for to set the canon straight. That would be extra weird. So you retcon it with an animated series? This, this, hmm. Maybe you turn everything after John's resurrection into an animated series. You just put a filter over it, right? Like a big, big Photoshop filter over it to make it all mm. animated and rotoscoped or like in Kill Bill when they go back to shaded Rin Ishii or, or I forget uh, sure. the Lucy Liu character and it's all anime flat. Yeah, you could do that. And then I still think you film the live action retcon to patch over all that stuff. I still think we need the dream of George finishing his books uh, uh-huh. to to yeah. be fulfilled before you could do any of this stuff. But that's yeah, that's obviously. Um, and I think HBO has the animation studios. Warner has the animation studios. They can make that happen if they wanted to, for sure. Gabriel says everybody, even Aunt Renice, Rainus, come on, get it straight. Seems to be uh, dismissing Rhaenyra's cut-bearing role as trivial, but my understanding from the source material has always been that King Viserys deliberately put her into that role to expose her to the inner workings of statecraft taking place in a small council. My opinion, it's a really heady job that puts her in a room with the big dogs for the realm's most important decisions and provides her with lots of insights she otherwise wouldn't have access to. But he doesn't want her speaking up in those moments. He wants her silent and just observing... I guess. Yeah, definitely in the books it's presented. And again, when I say it's presented, I mean, two sentences are given to it that like he made mm-hmm. her to cut bear to put her in the room where it happens, you know, like okay. they talk about now in, uh, in Hamilton. Mm-hmm. But again, this is a maester back figuring things out 250 years after this is all dead and gone. And um, I think we're getting, if this is the true bird's eye neutral story that Viserys didn't really 
groom her to be a leader the way that the canon kind of posits that he did. Mm-hmm. She doesn't certainly feel like she's being mentored. Maybe I should use mentor groom grooming as is, is a, has got a negative connotation nowadays. I find sure. But, um, but yeah, like she, she's, she's not being molded into the leader that you would think that she was, uh, as the realm's delight in the books. But again, I think this is one of those legitimate kind of maester getting things wrong. Mm-hmm. Raul says, I thought it was implied by the way the, uh, Starks are connected to their wolves. The Targaryens are also connected to their dragons. Yes or no. Uh, also, Logan wrote in and said, my question is the first scene where Damon is on his dragon. Does it seem like the dragon also felt his pain when he was hit by the arrow? That was my first reacting on first watch, and it leads itself to mind connection theories. What do you All think, right. Jim? As a non-book reader, did you pick up on the parasympathetic reactions that uh, Car- Caraxes was allegedly having here? Now that it's mentioned, yeah. Yeah, I think so. There was, there was something there, and I don't I don't know if it heard his scream and was like, oh, well, that's probably bad, or if it was a psychic, you know, magical connection or what. But, yeah, there was definitely a reaction on both of their parts. It reminds me of, like, uh, I just saw this TikTok a couple days ago where a guy had a vacuum sweeper and his German shepherd just kind of in the background doing his business, and he just started screaming and let the vacuum suck onto his chest and act like the vacuum is attacking, and that German shepherd mm-hmm. just instantly is like... <laughs> and like grabs the hose and pins it to the ground like it's was he was he like mine was he warging into his dog or was his dog like holy shit my master's screaming this is fucked also the dragon i don't think it was hurting it but it was getting hundreds of flaming arrows shot at it and i think it's kind (laughs) of like this fucking sucks you know he was getting agitated because they were getting so to tell you the truth I never got in any of the books that the Targaryen's control of dragons was as strong as the warging. Cause like Bran would literally go into yeah. the mind of his wolf and could take control, not uh-huh. just remote view, but take control. I don't think the Tar- Targaryens have that, but honestly that's one of the biggest enduring mysteries of the season uh, of the show is how the fuck do the Targaryens have the control of their dragon? Is there a fucking dragon horn? Is there some old Valerian blood magic that's slowly kind of grinding down after Valeria stopped work? Like what, what is the deal? You know, why do the dragons kind of start going extinct? There's that. Then, and I'm hoping that we get a lot of answers here. I mean, they definitely speak to them. Yeah. Like yeah. verbally. So they seem to understand Valerian, way, but, but dogs, tend to understand language too to some extent it's yeah it's something to keep an eye on i i think i i'm not sold one way or another yet uh kyle points out the lannister twins were portrayed by the same actor who played the ill-fated sir hugh of the Vale. if you don't remember him he's the guy that gregor clegane killed in jousting in the first episode and barristan selmy stands his knight's vigil uh over uh this and uh he's a very newly minted knight with fancy equipment that allowed ned to start suspecting that he might be a cat's paw um, that he that he might have uh, betrayed his lord, uh, 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 John Aaron of the Vale. Um, so, uh, Kyle says I referred to him as the kind of Hemsworth the order off Wish dot com. So when Aaron called him a low budget Hemsworth, I instantly knew we'd be friends. Well, thank you, buddy. Hmm. I'm glad we're sympathetico. <laughs> Uh, I like it. I like it when Game of Thrones re- recast people. They've done it with um, uh, uh. Uh, shit what was uh, Tommen Lannister he was like one of the cousins right um, they've done it a couple of different times and I always think it's it's entertaining mm-hmm. 
Chloe from San Francisco here had to follow up on your comment uh, regarding the response to the question posed by one of your listeners from the Rogue Prince feedback episode. Listener observed that the attitude of the showrunners has come across as, hey, we know it's hard to be a woman, so let's watch these women suffer. Aren't we so feminist? He asked, do you think it's something that the show will correct over time or do you think it's just an unavoidable problem due to the source material? He also uh, commented on the inherent problem of asking two dudes to opine on the matter. So let me help you out. This is my lady take. It's an obvious, there's an obvious and immediate solution. Hire a female showrunner and hire more women directors and writers. The two showrunners, including replacement Ryan Condal, are men. Game of Thrones famously had only one female director, as well as three female writers, and of course, zero female showrunners. As of 2020, only 27.6% of executive producers or showrunners are women. Only 17.9% of these are BIPOC, uh, black, indigenous, people of color, for that matter. Um... I mean, this is a point well taken. And mm-hmm. I, so, like, I also I think I reported incorrectly that um, Alan Taylor is not in as co-showrunner. Ryan Condal is continuing as sole showrunner now. And and uh, Taylor is just taking on Sapochnik's directing duties for next season. Uh, and okay. now that I know that I'm a little bit more nervous because Condal, like, he's got this season under his belt, but like his pedigree is a little bit question marky before this big of his prestige show. So I'm going to be a little bit nervous about season two. Um, and it seemed like it would have been a good opportunity to bring someone. Uh, if you're going to be dealing with this many quote unquote, strong female characters dealing with this much feminine pain, maybe bring on a couple of women. Uh, yeah. Wouldn't be a bad idea. But that's like that's something that I, I think uh, the more people have a say at the table, like that's that, we're not going to solve any of the problems of our day until everyone has their perspectives represented and their needs heard at the big table. And for that to happen, everyone's got to have a seat there. Right. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In one way or another, certainly. And Hollywood, for all the shit they talk about being progressive, probably could do better leading the way. Right. You know. Uh, you, you hear about the liberal elites in Hollywood and how they're controlling everything. Well, why don't they fucking control some more representation in the the, the power corridors there, right? So yeah, I mean, ground yeah, is definitely. I, I agree. Is being ground is being made. That's not what I'm trying to say. Ground uh, is being ground from ground the grinds of the grist. Uh, progress is being made in in that concern. But certainly, yeah, the people who are most affected by it would like to see it happen faster. And I don't blame. Sure. You. Sure. And it's never it's never fast enough. Right. Yeah. Joe from Iowa says, have you guys heard of HBO be doing any history or lore videos for House of the Dragon? They were a huge help for me when I first started watching Game of Thrones and really got me into the series. I jumped in around season four and they're a great device for helping me understand the world and characters of Game of Thrones. I think they could really help viewers with the different houses and characters, especially the new ones jumping in and the deep into House of the Dragon. Is there any insider information that you know of? From my perspective, we don't get insider information. So no, <laughs> we don't, we don't we even get, get to see the show uh, in advance. Yeah, viewings. Yeah, um, yeah. So, so, so I'm not aware of any, but yeah, those were awesome. As a guy who obsessively bought all the Blu-rays for the previous seasons, my recollection was most of that material came out with the production of the Blu-rays. Uh, all those slick kind of charcoal hmm. pencils on the okay. vellum paper animated with Lord Tywin and toning about all the history of like, that stuff came out on the DVD releases, Blu-ray releases. So it might be the same. I know that there, if you look for the house of dragon official site, they do have some like family tree side information. Um, but uh, I, I think that 
is the kind of expensive add-on stuff you do when you know your show's a hit. Um, and by the time you joined in in season four, a lot of that shit has already was compiled and put on the website and then YouTube mm-hmm. and all. So like it, it's we just haven't caught up yet. Um, I imagine when these Blu-rays come out, they're going to be some sick shit. So some, some sick extra features for sure. Taylor says it seems odd to give the crab feeder grayscale. Damon is clearly exposed to the grayscale after killing the crab feeder. Um, but he was holding the crab feeders bare skin when he's dragging the body out of the cave. We got to worry about Damon being a stone man. Your thoughts? Uh, look, I was looking at that hand. He was holding it looks pretty clear of grayscale. I didn't see any grayscale on that hand, I, but again, covered head to toe in the crab feeders blood. I got to think that has a little bit of grayscale in it. Yeah, I saw some. There's, there's two main responses uh, from the lore, Lorenati, the Lormanati, uh, okay. the people that have read the books. Like one is there are instances of people that have grayscale and it goes in remission. I'm thinking Shireen, sure. Princess Shireen Baratheon, that, Stannis' didn't daughter. did he like trade the souls of everyone in his kingdom for that favor? I I, I don't like, think so. I, that's no? I think okay. you're confusing him burning her. Up. But 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 she had she is one of the rare instances where it stabilized and it wasn't contagious. Okay. Huh. However. Uh, I don't think crab feeder looked that he had a lot of raw red skin, a lot of skin oh, sloughing yeah. off a lot of exposed scabby sores. I think he was an active grayscale guy. Mm-hmm. The other thing is there are hints that the Targaryens seem to think that in addition to being better than men, they are disease resistant. Uh, there's a lot of, uh, I, I think, uh, Viserys, uh, Danny's brother mentioned a lot of that and his, you know, ravings about being, you know, just better than everybody that they're, they, you know, dragons don't have to worry about getting sick and dragons don't have to worry about this and dragons don't have to worry about that. And that was something that was well, but like also good King Jaehaerys, old King Jaehaerys had one of his daughters who became a septa die treating a plague of grayscale, got grayscale herself and died. So like. <laughs> It's certainly like if they're disease resistant, they're certainly not disease impervious. However, if the show wants to go that direction, they have to tell us. They they have to clue us in on that because nothing that I've seen in Game of Thrones has told us that Targaryens couldn't get grayscale. And if I'm being honest, it's something that does a little minor worry me about the show that they're doing something that they got to know obsessive fan. Like they're like, we want the crab feeder to look sick. So let's yeah. put a, a son of harpy mask on him uh, that's all covered in barnacles and give him grayscale. Mm-hmm. And then we want Damon to look sick. So let's have him cut that dude in half and drag his bloody corpse, dragging intestines out of a cave and he's covered in the guy's blood. And nobody thought, well, aren't people going to think he's going to get grayscale? Um, yeah. So yeah, maybe they'll address it next time. This is not the episode to address it, right? Like, no, he's just killed the man. He he was just the badass. So let's let him let him have his moment. And then maybe in the next episode, and they, they might. But like, I'm going to not be surprised if they don't. And then I'm going to be just a little bit like, again, I'm yeah, not it's not another like, crack, right? There are definitely as, as as pleased as I was and and am with these first three episodes. It's entirely mm-hmm. possible this show fumbles the ball. If not this season, next season or, the, you know, like, I think it's less likely because all they really got to do is follow these well-constructed bullet points and plot points and pick which, if they want to lean towards Mushroom or Septa, Septa, uh, Septon Eustace and, and their characterizations. And it's they they got they, they shouldn't. They shouldn't fumble, but they might. And yeah, it's stuff like this. 
Yeah, these are the things I'm minorly kind of like, you know, it's like you're a, a proud parent at a recital and someone just played a, sh- you know, your kid just played a sharp note instead of flat. He's kind of wince. You're mm-hmm. not going to be like, boo, boo, you <laughs> suck. But, you know, yeah, leave. find your own way home. <laughs> yeah, right. You're no son of mine. <laughs> B flat. Uh, it, it's not something like that, but it's kind of like, uh, uh, we can tighten that up a little bit, I think, on the next concert. Mm hmm. Also, P.S. Female officers in the military are referred to as ma'am, not sir. Well, is is that what? all branches? Because I swear to Christ, I've seen people referred to women being referred to as Mr. and sir. Maybe I it's have been lied to by every piece of cinema I've ever seen. Every military based piece of cinema I've ever seen. I swear calls both male and female officers, sir. Yeah, I know that's like in Star Trek. Like, I'm fairly certain Star Trek Wrath of Khan, uh, someone calls Savick Sir and Mr. Mr. Savick. Um, Now, get it. Star Trek is not a realistic military depiction. But it's based on naval traditions. It's not like (laughs) it's not totally. It's not totally off the map. But but literally everything I've ever seen has called both female and male officers, sir. I do love staffing my my ships exclusively with officers. Not like you, you might have a Miles O'Brien as a non-com running around there once, but like yeah, ninety nine point nine percent is a commissioned officer. Yeah, it's it's real. But yeah, I I don't know. A thousand people on that ship, we just don't see them. Well, Joe from Iowa is saying that uh, it's not necessary as cut and dry. So uh, we'll I'm sure we'll get follow up. Right? There's no people with military history listening to this podcast. I'm certain of it. Yeah, zero. I think I just blended Taylor and Joe. Joe was the one that had the man not sir. I forgot to read. Anyway, let's move on to Daniel T. Want to write in as part as a couple of Lord of the Rings, Hobbit, hot dragon, <laughs> hot D comparisons. I noticed this episode because they had two dragons, Caraxes and Sea Smoke. The first scene of Caraxes reminded me a little bit of smog burning Lake Town, particularly the point where Caraxes lands and starts walking down the beach towards the caves. Very reminiscent of smog landing on the rooftops of Lake Town and slowly walking towards Bard the Bowman. In, in what missing, movie is this he's talking about? This is, I think, the second uh, Hobbit film. Ah. The Desolation ah. of Smog. Maybe it's the for beginning of the third. Honestly, I survived I those no movies. Idea. I have no yes. effect. I've seen every one of the Hobbit movies once and the third one under protest. And I'll never see them again. They're trash. God willing. God willing. <laughs> um, the only thing missing was Caraxes peppering the crab feeder with riddles and the crab feeder calling himself a stone stepper or something like that. The other fun thing I noticed was in the final battle scene when Sea Smoke flew low and picked up two men with his feet and tossed them in the air. I believe this is the first time we've seen a dragon do that in Game of Thrones or Hot D. It was definitely giving Return of the King Fell Beast vibes. We combine those scenes with Rhaenyra and Cyrex emerging from the clouds surrounding Dragonstone. I think it's awesome that we're getting to see dragons in action this season in some unique ways compared to what the universe has shown us previously. Yeah, yeah no, I'm maybe my uh, favorite dragon thing was was yeah tossing that dude, those two dudes it's so amazing. disrespectful to just be like uh-huh. i'm going to carry you into my domain and then let you go fly yep. you fools fly <laughs> it's such a <laughs> such a shit way to die as a knight uh-huh um eva says is the baby aegon the same aegon uh we see serving at the wall in game of thrones Actually, Eva, I think you have made uh, like some kind of homophone simile mistake because the guy, the old maester Targaryen we saw at the wall was Maester Aemon, mm-hmm. who was born in House Targaryen as the second king, a uh, son of King uh, Makar. And uh, he gave up. He was a second son and he pursued a life of a maester because he didn't think he would be needed. And then, of course, 
he was needed. Um, and uh, he joined the wall in part to get away from all the political intrigue and turmoil, which led to his younger brother, Aim- uh, Damon, I'm sorry, Aegon, named Aegon the Unlikely because of the wild succession line that followed to get him there. <laughs> um, and we will probably see more of this. The, you, you hear a lot about this Aegon um, in connection with the Duncan Egg series. And it seems like that's one of the warm shows that they're thinking of green lighting. We'll probably get a lot more of that era. But we are, you know, he, he was... Um, the way this all works out is Eamon joins the Night Watch... Many years later, Aegon the Fifth, uh, Aegon the Unlikely, dies and passes to his son, um, Aemon's nephew, Aerys the Second, who will become known as the Mad King. So we are several generations of Targaryens and House of Dragon away from that, and that itself is several generations removed from the action of Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. So I hope that helps to stick the Targaryen tree in, in your mind. Uh, getting towards the end here, Matt says, do you think there will be more magical creatures in House of Dragons? Mermen, Krakens, a house of the undying at full power, maybe a trip to the Shadowlands. He's alluding to the fact that it was often connected the dra- death of dragons, the death of magic. Dragons mm-hmm. full of life. Yeah. Do we see this? Do, 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 what do you think, Jim? I I don't know. I mean, I, all I have context wise really is game of thrones and i didn't see any krakens or anything like that i mean the most magical creatures i saw were you know the white walkers uh the dragons that she had which we definitely will get in this series um and and then maybe some dire wolves it's i don't think the warlocks uh you know over in the house of the undying like i think oh yeah when i'm thinking creatures i'm thinking like oh yeah yeah i'm not Not, really thinking not people warlocks yeah sure yeah uh, so I don't know. Is is there a lot of like different creatures or magical beasts in the the fiction here, or is I mean, it I just kind of what to, we've already seen on screen? It have to be pretty mildly interesting uh, for me to comment uh, on that. Uh, oh, we'll, we'll, okay. we'll we'll see. Well, that that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be good. That this means it's mildly interesting. All right, I just want to nip this shit in the bud. That doesn't mean Aaron Aaron knows <laughs> and he's like, oh, wait until you see fucking Krakens coming out the ass of the gray bo- <laughs> the 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 gray joys. No, I'm just saying it's mildly interesting. Gotcha. There's still lots of hot D to talk about. We'll be back right after the break. And now back to hot D. Jamie M. In House of Dragon, it seems as though there are Targaryens all over the place. By the time we get to the events leading up to Game of Thrones, we're left of the Mad King Aerys, his three kids, two grandkids, three if you count Mr. Snow, and Aemon. At the end of the Game of Thrones, we just got Jon. What the hell happened? There's so few Targaryens left. Was it the fighting in the upcoming Targaryen Civil War coupled with inbreeding? Uh, yeah. Yeah, there's a whole fucking Civil War. Yeah. Thousands will die. Many dragons will die. It's it's said that House Targaryen might never like this is the it's it's said at the beginning of the series. It's the apex of the Targaryen power. That means they're never going to achieve this level of power again. This is going to be a devastating war to the realm and to House Targaryen. But obviously there's lots more fire and blood. There's a whole second volume. It's probably going to be 700 pages long. It's going to cover the you know, there's 300 history, 300 years of Targaryen history. Fire and Blood covers the first 150-ish of them at 700 pages, and this is volume one. So clearly, their story's not over, but they're never going to quite get to the level that they're at uh, at, at, at the, the reign of King Viserys. So 
with lots of brutality ahead. Finally, she says, with regard to why Rhaenyra didn't kill the stag, the white stag, in the bit after the show, they commented something about the white stag appearing at the hunt. It was thought to be an omen for Aegon to be the true king. Perhaps killing the stag and bringing it to the camp, she, although displaying uh, that she saw and killed it, would also demonstrate that the stag was there for her brother's name day hunt. Mm. It's possible, and I like your theory, but more importantly, you have unwittingly kicked off this week's The Maester's Corner! All right, we're back with The Maester's Corner. Anthony, uh... We, we, we got some some riveting subjects. I'm going a little off canon. I love it. Because Ryan Condal went off canon. We had this reference yep. on Sunday night to the White Heart. I was, like, ah. yeah, I was thinking about that myself. When you when you texted me and said, I think I'm going to do the White Heart, I was thinking, oh, geez, I think I need to come up with something else. Because I think that that was, it's one of these <laughs> obvious it. things. It's like, do people know that this is, this has a, a really significant symbol in Arthurian legend? I don't know. Well, see, I, I'm i not steeped in medieval yeah. history and religion and stuff like you, so I didn't know this. I assumed, like, when I heard this, I'm like, oh, this is some interesting Westerosi, Stormlord, Crownland-type lore that I'm going to find a cool yeah. entry on the Wiki of Ice and Fire. No, I as I was watching the behind-the-scenes, Ryan Condal confessed. He's like, ah, oh, no, no, we just made this up cribbing from Arthurian legend. Um, I think it fits. Well, thanks God. Um, they needed to get those Targaryens out of doors. They needed to get outside yes. doing something. Get some sunlight. Yes, exactly. Get out, get out of your rooms. Um, but yeah, so I, I started like doing the research. And I found some really interesting connections here. And then I mentioned I was doing white heart research and you're like, I've got the letter for you because one of I'm assuming this is one of your buddies from academia yeah Carol Parrish Jameson has been uh, joining me on Electric Bookaloo to cover a few chapters here and there and she's kind of my go-to person on nights because she's an expert on the chivalric code and so mm. I just I, as soon as I saw that episode I thought I'd shoot her an email and say hey what can you tell me about the white heart and then I got your text right. and I was like eh, I might as well just give it to <laughs> send, send the email on <laughs> forward it on well when you said that it's like I've got an email from uh, uh, a uh, you said a big wig in medieval literature yeah, I'm yeah. like I'm a lazy lazy man Anthony give me this sweet content and I, I'm going to elaborate on it yeah. too but uh, Carol says while she hasn't had a chance to watch this week of this episode I understand that a white heart makes an appearance mm. in medieval mythology the white heart is an elusive animal often associated with the magical realm it is not however impossible to catch one because that was one of the things I found in my research that the white horse uh, heart is a legendarily difficult to to catch creature. Yeah. As uh, Sir Gawain does so, am I pronouncing that right? I always say Gwyn, but I've heard people say Gawain as well. So I don't well, know. I'm gonna go with Gwyn. You said Gwyn. I said Gwyn. I say uh, Gwyn, but I I could be totally wrong on this. Well, I'm going to go with your pronunciation. Okay. It's probably more learned than mine. Uh, Sir Gawain does so in Mallory's The Wedding of King Arthur. This is from the La Morte d'Arthur, uh, you know, collect, like 14th, 15th century collection of Arthurian legends. Mm-hmm. Um, the White Heart sets off the adventures of Arthur's knight shortly after Arthur establishes himself as king. Here's what happens. At Arthur's wedding feast, Merlin announces that all will witness a marvelous adventure. Then a white heart runs into the hall with a white bratchet, which is a hound that hunts by scent. Hot on its heels and 30 other black hounds, followed by a lady on a white palfrey, which is a type of horse. 
It causes quite a commotion. Their heart knocks over one of the knights who jumps up and steals the bratchet, much to the lady's displeasure, as she says the bratchet is her own. Then a knight comes into the court and steals away the lady. At Merlin's request, Arthur sends uh, Gawain, Tor, and Pelinor off on a quest. Gawain is told to bring back the head of the White Heart. Tor is told to bring back the bratchet in the night, and Pelinor is to rescue the lady. Which turns out is the Lady Nineveh, which is also maybe better known as the Lady of the Lake. Yeah. Oh, I... The watery tart dispensing swords. Yeah, I hadn't made that connection. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. Um... So here, and she's got a million different names. This is one of them. Uh, so here, the White Heart is associated with magic. Uh, back to Gwen and his hunt for the heart. This is Gwen's first adventure as he's newly knighted. He succeeds in killing the heart. A knight appears, claiming that the heart was his own, given to him by a lady. He challenges Sir Gwen. When Gwen gets the best of him, the knight begs for mercy, and Gwen refuses. As Gwen goes to finish off his opponent, a lady gets in his way, and he accidentally beheads her. He returns to Camelot in disgrace with the head of the White Heart and also the head of the lady whom he has accidentally beheaded. Arthur and Guinevere charge Gwen with fighting on behalf of ladies for the rest of his life as recomp- recompense. Mm-hmm. His actions also lead to the establishment of the Pentecostal Oath, which is the chivalric code for Arthur's knights. So sum up, yes, you can kill the White Heart. It's clearly not a desirable action. Here it also indicates that Gwen's behavior is not up to code and necessitates the creation of a chivalric code. Mm -hmm. So that ends her email. I also found the other two knights kind of an interesting connection with House of the Dragon. So the other knight was tasked to returning the Bratchet. Mm -hmm. Uh, He finds it and takes it, but another knight comes up and says, hey, you can't take this hound because it belongs to yet another lady who I'm sworn in the service of. And this night, Tor is like, well, Arthur told me to. So beats the guy down and he begs for mercy. And he's like, well, give me the dog. And the guy's like, I'm not going to give you the dog. And the Tor's like, in the middle of this negotiation, the lady who owns the Bratchet bops up and or no, not the lady. She's another person. And she goes, this knight needs to die because just yesterday he was dueling my brother and my brother begged him for mercy and he's shown no quarter. Right. So Tor is like, well, I got to take the Pratchett and this lady says you're a murderer. Snick, snack. There goes your head. Uh, and for this act, he's rewarded with an earldom uh, okay. from from King Arthur. That's nice. So now these two first two tales are connected with, um, you know, one night requesting nurse mercy, not getting it. And an innocent lady gets slain the other night, refusing to show another night mercy and getting his ass owned by Tor. So there's kind of like the perils of, of, of what happens when you don't show mercy. The final story of Pelinor going after the maiden, uh-huh. which as your friend points out, lady in the lake. This knight sees a young woman cradling a wounded knight by a well as he's riding out of Camelot on this quest. And she tries flagging the knight down, getting his attention. He's like, I'm on a sacred mission from my liege lord. You're going to have to figure out yourself. Salutes the lady and keeps on riding. Eventually finds the lady of the lake, uh, rescues her. And after a lot of travails, brings him back on the way home. They pass that well again. This time they find the knight had succumbed to his wounds that the lady was cradling the lady overcome by grief has run herself through with the knight's sword. And both of their bodies have been desecrated by wild beasts because it's been some time. Bummer. And Pelinor finds out to his great sorrow that this lady that he ignored the request for help is none other than his own daughter. Oh no. Oh no. So he rides back up to Camelot and Merlin pronounces a judgment on him and says, because of you ignoring this lady's cries for help, 
in her hour of need on your darkest day when you need help your best friend will reject you and leave you on the field of battle Mm. and you yourself will die so the article that i read that kind of like discussed these three myths and how they're connected mentions the mercy thing obviously but also especially with the connection to arthur at the end of this is like god dang we need to we need to write some of this stuff down so we're all on the same page It, it it connected um the fact that all these tales involve a knight protecting and honoring women or the downfalls of what happens when that doesn't take place. Because all these involve an innocent woman who, among other things, has been wronged and dies, except for the one woman whose brother dies. And I thought that's really interesting since so much of the action in House of the Dragon so far involves not protecting and honoring uh, women. Right. And I I noted in this episode, you know, Rhaenyra almost gets killed. You know, Kristen Cole is trying to protect her, right? They're out in the wood. It's in it. It's during a hunt. Of course, she's gone rogue or whatever. He runs the boar through the neck and that sword comes through the neck and almost gets her. And it's almost like, an, it's sort of like, a, I don't know if it's, an, it's a conscious homage, but given what the stories that you just read, the first one at least, you know, because he kills the, the white heart, but he also beheads the lady, right? Right. That's, exa- that's almost what happens with the boar. He, he kills yeah. the boar and almost kills the lady. Yeah. So I thought that was you interesting. Almost- Almost fucked up a chivalric oath, which is funny because they don't have a King Arthur in, in Westeros, but they do have, uh, broadly speaking, this code of chivalry, which, you know, like yes. in Game of Thrones times is kind of a joke. Like it's something that everybody says publicly, right. but privately, they're a lot more roguish. That's right. And I think that there's something about the white heart that it's like it, there's something about going on a quest for something that's almost unattainable. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to reveal something about the character of the knight. And mm-hmm. I think that the, we're, I think we are supposed to, in this episode, realize that Kristen Cole has the goods, right? All yeah. these other guys are kind of pretenders, right? Kristen Cole is the real thing. Um, he's he's not he does not the flashiest. He doesn't have the most nah. colorful sigil, but man, but nothing's this guy been can given get to him. Done. He's done. He's come from nothing. He you know is is stayed true to his vows. He's actually been in combat. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, he's like you said, he's got the goods. Okay, and there's a parallel between getting the stag and getting the lady in these stories, right? At the en- at the end, they both encounter the white stag, and he decides he's going to unsheath his sword. Could be a sexual metaphor, but mm. she stops him, and she says, "No, no, no." Let let the white stag go. It's almost like he's he's this close to getting the stag. He's not going to get the lady either. I mean that that's that's my interpretation, and it's just because he's he's taken the vow of celibacy or whatever. So yeah, I thought that was interesting. Well, what you got in on your side okay. of the corner? All right. So I noticed in this episode that at the very beginning. Renera is sort of tormenting this minstrel. And that reminded me of the troubadours, um, which were popular in the medieval period. And the troubadours are really, really important for introducing a very, almost a crucial element of modern culture. 
At the end of the episode, we are given this proclamation by the king. He says, I will not usurp you. You can choose your own husband. Those two things, I think, are important bookends. There is something important about the connection between the historical troubadours and the woman's ability to choose for herself. And that is because the troubadours invent modern romance. Okay. Oh, yeah? So, oh, yeah, absolutely. So let me tell you the, uh, the, the backstory here. It begins in Persia. How well do you know your Persian erotic love poetry, Aaron? You know, I'm I'm shaky. <laughs> I know a little bit about Cyrus the Great. Yeah. Is he per- he's Persian, right? Yeah. I assume it must involve him. Uh, no, it actually. All right. So erotic poetry is as old as sin, right? It's as old as time. You've got erotic love poetry going all the way back to a lot of ancient cultures. But in the 8th century, Persian love poetry takes a turn. And we get this story that we don't see paralleled anywhere else until this moment. And that is the story of Layla and Majnun. All right? Which means, Majnun means the madman. And it's a story okay. of this lower class boy who's in love with a high class girl. And because of the, their class difference... He can never consummate. And so it's, it's, it's kind of the very first story of unrequited love. So he can't we, get that white heart. He cannot can't, get can't, it. Can't, can't track it down. Yeah. And he's driven mad by it. And so this is like the first poem to depict unrequited love, which is a little different than eroticism, right? Because eroticism is all about the consummation of the act. Unrequited love is something else. All right. So, as we know, a lot of Arab influence in Spain. And really at the height of the Iberian Peninsula, we see a lot of cross-pollination between cultures. And just about that time, we get these traveling poets and songwriters and performers that are now singing about unrequited love. And it's all about these men who want to prove their worth to a sort of an upper high class woman, a lady of court, by by sort of uh, these massive displays of emotion. Okay, so guess who loves this poetry? Guess who loves these songs? Women at court, right? So now you get a lot of calls for these troubadours to come and sing these songs. All right? And normally what happens in these songs is that there's this guy who's trying to win and woo the love of of a woman who's beyond his station. And And so they start falling over themselves. They start falling on their knees. Um, this sort of inspired the Derek and the Domino song, Layla. You know, I'm falling on my knees, Layla. Huh. And then the woman gets to choose whether or not this person, uh, this man satisfies her or not. And that is exactly where we get the term falling in love. Because these guys at court would fall on their knees to express their love for these women. All right. So that be, that sort of starts this idea that the woman has a choice in these things. 
And that, that at least for higher class women, they get to experience the emotion of love before they choose a partner. Now, it would take hmm. centuries before this to become sort of common practice. But now it's, it's shifted. So this is an example of like pop culture influencing actual culture an actual sort of mm. marriage ritual, right? Be- before this, you married, you, you married for political stability or you married because there was a matchmaker in town that told you you should get married or you married because your father told you to get married. Now, these people want to fall in love before they get married. And it's become so popular that now in the Western world, it's almost anathema to marry for any other reason. Okay. Yeah, everybody wants to be a Rhaenyra. Uh, Nobody yeah, wants right. to be forced. So it into starts. It, yeah. it starts in Persia. It gets influenced through these French poets, and it it spreads all over the place, Italy and, and Germany, and then it takes centuries before what happens, sort of in the the courts, sort of trickles down to become sort of common sense, and that is why mm-hmm. they, we call it courtly love because that because it originates in court. So I thought it was a nice little bookend to put the minstrel up front, sort of singing the song to this woman at court. And at the end of the episode, the king finally relents and says, finally, you fine, you choose your own husband. I thought that was a brilliant little bookend for this episode. Awesome. I love it. Uh, Anthony, if, ever, if, if people want to come to you further for more maesterly wisdom... Uh, during the run of House mm, of the Dragon, yes, where, Double Dragon. Where, what, what are you? What are you up to? Yeah, look for Double Dragon this week. Uh, Steve and I cover episode three, and then I include an hour-long conversation with an honest-to-god Tolkien PhD, all the way from Australia. And she cover. She helps me cover the first couple episodes of Rings of Power, and she's also oh, so written a lot about racial uh, representation and fantasy lit. So that's kind of her expertise. Interesting. So you've got uh, Double Dragon doing double duty. Double duty. Got double the, Dragon. You got the T-Rop in your hot D and <laughs> your hot D in your T-Rop. Ab- absolutely. Hey, um, it's, 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 where, it's where the pop culture is at nowadays. Yeah. So Hey, can I, can I mention one more little thing? I want to shout out a, an artist friend of please. mine. I know you're into to supporting artists. Um, friend in Texas, Patrick Moran. Go to his website, Patrick Moran, Art and Design. He's doing some House of the Dragon themed artwork, and it's fantastic. So if, if you want to go check that out, um, you can go to PatrickMoranArtAndDesign.com. All right. Check out Maester Anthony on Double Dragon. That's DBL, right, Dragon? Or is it, can you find it both ways? You just find it, just spell out double. Yeah. Double. Start search for Double Dragon in your favorite podcast app, and uh, we'll have him back next week for another Maester's Corner. Thanks, thanks for coming man. on, Anthony. Absolutely. All right. Thanks again for Anthony for stopping by to Maester's Corner. This is going to uh, usher in a uh, the next few emails are a little bit more lore heavy, a little bit more behind the scenes. I'm not going to say they're spoilery, but mm. honestly, if you're sharp and you start making connections, maybe you can see where some of this is going. So if you just want to stay, well, there's no danger just- for me. Then perfect. If you just want to stay grounded in the show, I just like because I, I never know. Like I, I, I mentioned someone was a third last week and they're like, did you know? And I'm like, fuck, I didn't know that. And I still don't know if only kings and queens get the second and third and fourth and fifth designation, like first in their name, second in their name. Oh, I okay. 
am Lord Aaron Hubbard II in real life. And I'm my ass has never sat on a throne. I'm just mm-hmm. the second in my name in my family. So I yeah. So like uh, if 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 and and if, if if that's considered a spoiler, some of this shit might be spoilery, but I I think it'll be fine. I just like, you know, some people are super sensitive. It's like a peanut allergy. You got a peanut allergy to like if you whiff a peanut, your throat closes and you die. Or you get the kind of peanut allergy where your tummy hurts. Like mm-hmm. how spoiler allergic are you? If you need an EpiPen when you get exposed to a spoiler, get the fuck out of here. Why are you? Mm-hmm. Li- why are you on the Internet? Why are you listening to podcasts? What? what? Shh. Ah, you're rolling around in peanut factory. Anyway. <laughs> Christian says, hello, dudes. Hello, Christian. I've been re-listening to the world of ice and fire lately during the chapter about the old town, uh, home of the maesters, home of the high towers, home of the uh, faith of the seven. I heard a line that made my ears pick up, given the reveal about Aegon, the conqueror's prophecy. The line is as follows. Septon Barth's claim that the Valerians came to Westeros because their priests prophesied the doom of man would come out of the land beyond the narrow sea can safely be dismissed as nonsense. Knowing what we know now, is this the first part of a Martin three-step reveal? It's been said that since the first episode and we've gone back and combed through the lore that there are surprising references to often because that's the thing. It's like you're reading that uh, five years ago. You think, oh, well, that's bullshit because the maester said so. But maybe the maesters just don't fucking know. And even the Valerians of all people you know, got out of Dodge because they had their own dreamers. Um, yeah. I'm what confused. Do you think, Why can it be safely dismissed? I, I'm, I'm the guy who's never heard of what explain to me what a peanut is. <laughs> so I can see if I'm allergic to it because I, well, you see George Schultz created a comic book about 60 years ago and uh-huh. uh, mm-hmm. the gang was, you know, they had Snoopy and they had Linus and Charlie Brown. There's a peppermint patty there. She may or may yep. not be a queer person. I don't uh, oh, yeah. No. I, so, like, I think what, what I was saying is, like, there is a claim that the Valerians, which are not Targaryens, but they are purebred Valerians. Okay. Of old Valeria mm-hmm. had a prophecy and they left Valerian before the doom because they knew about it happening. Before. And this adds on to what we just found out about, you know, Danis the dreamer has always been said that like, she told her father that, Hey, we got to get out of here because this is all going to come. And he's like, fuck it. We're selling everything, taking her dragons, going to Dragonstone. The maesters dismissing that. We always took that as an authoritative source that like, well, the maesters have looked into it and they think this is just Targaryen bullshit, or this is Valerian bullshit. This is them granted this, but I think there's a lot more room now after house of the dragon has come out to like, maybe the, the maesters just didn't know. Okay. Because this is an omniscient narrator narr- narration kind of point of view that uh-huh. no, actually there were prophecies that were coming true, and since we know how Game of Thrones ends, even Aegon was onto something about the prince that was promised in the Song of Ice and Fire. Gotcha. I misunderstood. I thought you were saying the prophecy was bullshit. Yeah, and, and when was, and, and when he's saying the, the Martin three step reveal, this comes to an old soul spake Martin where he says the way he likes to do these deep lore nuggets is he likes mm-hmm. to put something in there to like one out of a million people, one out of a hundred thousand readers will pick up on and be like, huh? And then he'll put one that's a little bit more obvious. So like he aims at a like 50% of readers will catch on to that. And then he always has what he calls a third step reveal, which is just plainly telling the people that yeah. weren't close reading. Maybe they're not as smart. Maybe they're not as uh, invested. Maybe they just were falling asleep. During a path. Like just come out and tell the person. Mm-hmm. And I, we refer to, to be able th- to follow the narrative. 
Right. You have to understand, you know, mm-hmm. he finally stops speaking of prophecy and riddles and just comes out and says, oh, look. Um, so that's we, we commonly refer to that as the Martin three step reveal. Mm-hmm. Um, so he's saying that, like, in retrospect, all this world of ice and fire, fire and blood stuff that the maesters who we thought were the ones who knew shit. Yeah. Anything that they said is like, well, this can safely be ignored. We're like, as a historian says, oh, you know, the South said that they're fighting for states rights. But we know. They're fighting for states' rights to what? You're not saying like, you know, you're you're saying like all the historians. <laughs> right. Well, in the Game of Thrones, the maesters are wrong sometimes. Not that yeah, historians that are right Ryan, about. Uh, that was Condal's <laughs> stated goal with this yes. show, right? Is to set yes. the matter straight once and for all um, when it comes to all the rumors and stuff and fire and blood and, and hearsay and secondhand reports. Uh, lots of stuff about Melisandre this week. Elaven says, hearing the question on the season one, episode two feedback episode of Melisandre would make an appearance got me thinking. It stands to reason that if the heir knows about Aegon's vision, Damon would have known about Viserys's longtime heir. Or would have known as Viserys's longtime heir. Uh, Damon's loose lips tell Myseria, who is from the east and has been bought and sold more times than I care to count. Of course, Melisandre is also that old are so old that she's alive during this time period. Also from the East also have been bought and sold many times. She already exchanges, uh, explains her change of appearance with blood magic. So a character mismatch is easily explained. Could this be the origin story of Melisandre's quest to find the prince that was promised? Maybe. Like I said, I don't think there's anything that like totally precludes it. Sure. This is an interesting, uh, I, I don't think there's any hint of this in the book, but gotcha. to the extent that they are drawing connections to the old series, it would be a very interesting take that because uh, I always just thought that like Melisandre enchanted looks about the same as young Melisandre did, but Not fuck it. There's no there's yeah. no reason to to make that a piece of the lore, you know, like if you could intentionally change your appearance, wouldn't you make yourself like as hot as you could? Geez, who's hotter, Melisandre or Messaria? I mean, they're different flavors of ice I cream, mean, man. Sure. It's all in the, uh, in the in the eye of the beholder. But I, I take your point. Like, yeah, if I was magically, I wouldn't make myself look like I looked when I was 24. I'd make the best fucking version of myself at 24. Right? You know That's what I'm saying? Yeah, spruce <laughs> it up a little bit if you got the magic yeah. to do it. Yeah, we're 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 refurbishing this old house, like you know. <laughs> right. Doesn't why stop at like the fresh? Hell yeah, man! We can fucking take out these non load bearing walls and, and make something out of it. <laughs> uh, Alyssa has also been rereading Fire and Blood and wondering if you thought it might be a fun tie-in to have the actress who played Melisandre, Carice Van Houten, to play Alice Rivers. Alice, a lady with uncertain origins, is described as being a malign enchantress who bathed in the blood of virgins to preserve her youth, according to Mushroom. He goes on to describe her as being potentially several generations old and still retaining her youth. There's also mention that she gave birth to demons to gain knowledge of the dark arts. I'd be here for it if we got to see a bit of Melisandre's origins in House of the Dragon. So you're saying like those two characters would actually be the same character? just by different uh, names or, yeah, or something that they're hinting to that. And uh-huh. I, I will say that like this uh, enchantress bathing in the blood of virgins bullshit, it seems to be a common trope. Like I remember from my, uh, my favorite spoiler crazy theory of all time. The fact that Roose Bolton, the Bolton theory that he might be a vampire. Mm-hmm. I think 
used this lady and another lady that's contemporary of kind of like building a case that there might be some kind of vampire blood magic going in the the Westeros is not unheard of. And it seems like but like I, I think this is to the extent this is kind of Martin freestyling with real life things because a lot of real life rulers were said to engage in unnatural practices and it happened to a lot mm-hmm. of women rulers like Catherine the Great mm-hmm. oh you know what her she fucks horses dude that's what her whole deal is like mm-hmm. it's a way to kind of like bring down and kind of sling an arrow at these and I think that since that motif keeps repeating with uh, like this dark sorcerer women that are stealing youth and corrupting minds like I, I think it might be kind of a even a Westerosi trope but gotcha. it'd also be cool to, yeah, I mean, I would like to see Clarice Von Hooten again. Why not? Sure. Um, Eric says, any thoughts on Elizabeth Olsen possibly playing a young Melisandre? Uh, I don't know where this came out of. Like, this came out of, like, central fan Scarlet casting Witch? on Twitter. Yeah. Is it literally sh- just because she plays a similar-ish looking character in a different... Okay. Hmm. I think I think you're right. Um, I guess. I mean, the resemblance isn't totally not there i could see it eric says given the show's massive budget why bring in talent why not bring in talent commanding a star's pay scale um i i I think that that's your you answered your own question it seems like these productions take a few medium grade names you know they take uh like a matt smith and a patty constantine they take uh sean bean and how uh, dare you patty constantine (laughs) is no medium talent sir I'm not saying he's a medium talent. I'm saying he's not a triple A lister, right? Like, can we can we admit that? Can mm. we admit can we admit okay, the Doctor fine. Who and he's not the, been in a Marvel project yet? And and one of the weirdos in the uh, Hot Fuzz series is not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think in the third day as well. I, I think that they take a lot of like kind of like up and coming and unknown talents because they save a lot of money in that. And and they're sure. talented people, but they're giving a lot of people. I mean, think no one knew who to fuck Maisie Williams or Kit Harrington mm-hmm. was ten years ago because they were children. <laughs> but like, yeah, like sure. I think that they they'd rather spend their money on that and and or spend their money on dragons and direwolves, although maybe not even that in the later seasons of Game of Thrones, than spend on big names, you know, mm-hmm. which would be kind of distracting. Like, do you want? You know, do you want a, a big giant? Do you want Jude Law playing King Viserys? Sure. No, because I think that's fair. The bigger the star, the more distracting it is. I like I like it when they can just disappear into those roles and become kind of those people. Um, so, yeah. Justin, he says, with the excellent casting of Steve Toussaint as Corlys Valerian, I'm com- intrigued by how skin color is going to factor in as we track who begets whom in the Targaryen timeline. Hmm. Reminds me of the black of hair, black of hair, blonde of hair part in early Game of Thrones. Ned's, mm-hmm. you know, adventures with the Punnett Square. My question to you is, do you think we will see some questions arise from the realm based on skin color and overall how you think this casting choice is going to ripple through Targaryen bloodline? I personally think it makes even more interesting. I can't wait to see where it goes. Can I tell you? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Because a lot of people get all bent out of shape when they see black Targaryens and black elves and whatnot. And uh, one of the reasons I don't is because it's like, this is a fantasy series. Why Mm -hmm. do the races of man look the way they do on planet earth? It seems like scientists say that you start off at the high latitudes and you're pasty ass white. You got your Norwegians, you got your Finlands, not a lot of dark people of color. 
And then as you get closer and closer to equator, it gets darker and darker and darker. And then you go south and get to the higher latitudes and it starts thinning out again. Now, the real life reason for that is our bodies are in an evolutionary war trying to protect us from the dangerous ultraviolet radiation. We're constantly bombarded from space, but they got to let enough through that we can manufacture DNA or um, 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 vitamin D or we die. Because we need that. We need sunlight exposure. So like uh, and this is a real life thing, like as 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 uh, uh, dark skinned people move to higher latitudes, there's often a lot of public safety. It's like, hey, you should probably, especially in the winter months, take some vitamin D supplements because uh, you're not going to uh, be, be be able to keep up, uh, especially uh, it'd also be cultural, like women that wear burkas that are in higher latitudes are at risk of vitamin D deficiency because they're not getting enough sunlight. Right. OK. Mm-hmm. Westeros, Martin has said the seasons and the weather have nothing to do with the planet's tilt. They have nothing to do with any orbital mechanics. They're all magical and they don't make any fucking sense. And that world, what would be the evolutionary pressure to have dark skin? Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, why can't it be more like hair color and height where it's definitely like we would call a heritable trait, but like, I can't tell you how many families I've known that had like a submarine redhead. That's like, sure, you know, you're sure. going, you just, you got, you got brown haired, brown eyed people and it goes for generations and then flaming red hair pops out of a woman. Like, what the fuck was a milkman involved? Oh, it turns out we had great grandpa Seamus who had red as hair as the devil's prick or hair as red as the devil's prick and everything. And so like real life can be weird that way. Okay. Yeah. Uh, you look at look at like cats. If we want to get out of the human uh, racial element, you can have a white cat have sex with a black cat and you get calico cats. You get a white cat. You get a black cat. You get a tuxedo cat. You get tabby cats. What the fuck is going on? It's not the same with cat fur as it is human skin. And I guess my head cannon in Westeros is like a family can have a spontaneous black child or a black family can have a spontaneous white child because there is no correlation to the region of birth and your skin color. So I is, I'm kind of interested because my head cannon will come smashing to, if, if there is like, uh, you know, uh, Rhaenyra and Raynor or Lenor would have progeny and they're Lily white. That'd be very surprising if we go from earth-based genetics, but mm-hmm. for, it wouldn't be super surprising from, from my perspective, from my head cannon Westeros birth mechanics, but it might be talked about and surprising to the people in that world, depending, you know, it like, just depends. Like you said, just with the way, submarine redhead, it, it could yeah. be like, Hmm, what's going on there? You know, some people you're right. look at it side-eyed, but you're right. So it's, it's not super cut and dry and it is a fantasy situation and they can make things be however they want. And it doesn't have to necessarily mm-hmm. tie to geographic regions and whatnot. So um, I'm curious to see, cause like, yeah, that could, you know, there's obviously, I don't think this is a spoiler uh, cause it's all happened in game of Thrones. Um, there's always accusation. Think about the Lannisters. Like oh, those are, those yeah. aren't legitimate rulers are incest babies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was truth to that. It turns mm-hmm. out you can see like if, if like I said, Lenor and, and rain Rhaenyra uh, have offspring and they're all like super lily white. Uh, maybe there will be some, but like, I just don't know that it has to be that way. Um, sure. And if it is that way, then you're going to have the people being like, well, why the hell do you go? Uh, um, 
which I find annoying, but you know, it it is what it is. So maybe that's my they thoughts can on it. Make Melisandre a black woman in this pre <laughs> yeah uh, man magic version of her. How about that? How about she comes mm-hmm. on the stage looking like Beyonce? Because you know that gym is just making a beautiful woman. It's not making a beautiful white woman. Yeah, sure. That sure. would definitely that would definitely get the right people uh, hotter than a collar. <laughs> it would. Uh, so that's what we got. That's what we got for the show for you. Hope you guys have found it in, in entertaining, enlightening, educational, uh, and empathetic. Hot D at ballmove.com is where you want to send us more, more lore related questions, more show related questions, just feedback in general. Uh, I encourage you to do that. Hot D at ballmove.com. You can follow us everywhere uh, or where, wh- everywhere we go on twitter.com slash baldmove. That's the great, the best way to find out about all the new releases, what we're covering coming up, and just, you know, some some uh, shit posting occasionally. And uh, you can also find us, our Discord at discord.baldmove.com. And uh, we will be back this Sunday night for our club members to have a live instant take reaction show on baldmove.com or posted at patreon.com slash baldmove. If you want to get on that support.baldmove.com is where you will go to, to join in uh, watch live participate in instant talk portion. If you don't want to do that, we will release an archive of our instant takes immediately after the episode airs. Uh, but if you want to support, we're always, always happy to have you support.baldmove.com. That's it for house of dragons this week. I am so excited to get more, T-Rop and Hot D in my life. Uh, We'll get some more T-Rop tonight. We'll get some more Hot D this weekend. Hope to see you on Sunday. Until then, I'm Aaron. And I'm Jim. See ya.